Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, yes, guten Morgen. Uh, it's Zane and uh, Jacob yeah, for the program today. So we have a pretty packed program today. Um, from 7.15 a.m., we we're going to be interviewing Chris Wright on our labour laws, um, specifically talking about the, discussing the right to strike. And then from 8.10 a.m., we'll be talking with Ibrahim, who um, is an academic at University of Melbourne and is for, from Yemen to talk about the politics um, that is happening uh, of, you know, what's happening in Yemen. Indeed. And before we go too much further, of course, we should uh, acknowledge that uh, 3CR is coming at you this morning from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And, uh, yeah. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And, uh, yeah, it's important to remember that and pay your respects. Yeah. So I guess um, in terms of breaking news uh, of stuff that is happening, um, I guess I'll give a quick update because I've been following it every week um, of what's happening in the UK elections, especially leading up to the general election. Um, and the good news is Jeremy Corbyn is slowly narrowing down the polls. I thought you were going to say the good news is Jeremy Corbyn's going to um, give away the rich people's stuff at bingo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a possibility uh, if he if he wins. Um, but yeah, base, um, but the, there has been this doubt over you know Corbyn winning. The elections because of these, you know, poor polling ratings. But pretty much as every week passes, um, the Labor's approval rating is slowly creeping up. So it's mm. going to be interesting to see what's going to happen um, around the June period. And I've heard some particular criticism of these polling figures in that um, these polling figures might not be accounting for um, the the people that don't actually vote um and there's a there's a possibility although um that Corbyn you know because he's presenting a political alternative um he's exciting lots of people that you know a large number of people who previously would not vote in an election um might actually vote for Corbyn um mm. so this this brings a whole dynamic it's not like it doesn't single guarantee that um, Labor and Corbyn is going to win, but it does put, bring, present this kind of uncertain dynamic that, you know, we can't be completely certain based on the polling figures. Mm. And what about the Syriza effect? Because obviously the risk is that uh, a Corbyn-Labor government gets voted in and then the power of the Conservatives within the Labor Party and the power of the capitalist class in general means that Corbyn's ability to implement the sort of platform that he's uh, talking about is, you know, it's very difficult. So there's that, that age-old question of the limitations of mm. 
parliament and the necessity of extra parliamentary action. Yeah, well, I definitely agree there's um, really clearly some limitations with Corbyn um, and the Labor Party in particular because... The big, the big challenge isn't actually winning the election. It's gonna be, the big challenge for the left is gonna come after Corbyn wins the election because, um, once he wins the election, he's still within a party that, you know, that is still, you know, tied to capital. Um, and it's also a party that still has lots of people who are probably ready to knife him in the, in the back, basically. Like a lot of, there's still a very strong right wing, influence in the party from the Blairites mm. and um, that's an, so basically I think really what needs to happen is there needs to be a mass movement behind Corbyn, mm. um, it's the only way that you we would be able to implement any of the things that he's implementing although it's interesting enough, you know it's kind of telling that you know, when you look at his manifesto a lot his manifesto isn't actually a socialist manifesto I mean, ideologically Corbyn probably is a socialist, he is, you know pushing for those kind of in that political direction um but really the manifesto of a lot of his reforms you know they're all positive reforms that you know working people should be fighting for and we Mm. should um have but you know it's it's kind of telling you know how right-wing you know politics has turned when a basic kind of social democratic program is smeared as a radical communist Mm. kind of program Mm. And because, you know, a lot of the reforms that are within this manifesto are things that have actually people in some European countries, especially the Nordic countries and like, you know, Sweden and um, have been taken for granted for for like for decades. Um, But of course, those all came um, in the context of, you know, lots of workers struggles. Um, And and the funny, the interesting thing about what's happening in Nordic countries is some of those rights are actually being slowly eroded away. Yeah. I found it interesting too, because Scandinavia is like right next door to Russia, and uh, I wonder the influence of having um, the Soviet Union right next door and a whole bunch of publicly owned everything, and um, you know, the sort of um, you know, there's all these problems with Stalinist Russia, of course, but one of the Aspects of it was big sort of resources put into public health care, public education. Um, those things are sort of provided free by the state. And I wonder, just looking at maps and thinking about the geopolitics, I wonder if having Europe to their south and then the Soviet Union right next door to Scandinavia was, was a sort of a, a factor in in the way that Scandinavia emerged as this sort of... I don't know, like the, when people think about the, the limitations, but also what's possible within social democracy, people often point to Scandinavia and go, well, you know, here's one little pocket of the world where social democracy has generally been a lot better than in other countries and has sort of weathered the, the neoliberal storm a lot better. Hmm. Well, I think when, off the top of my head, um, you know, the example of Finland's education system and how it, you know, has a publicly owned, fully funded education system where they actually, you know, pay teachers well. Mm. Um, that is, um, I've read analysis that actually analyzes that in terms of, 
of, you know, the, the Soviet Union has apparently had a strong influence on the Finland education system. Yeah. And it, of course, that education system is still maintained despite the fact that in Finland, um, there probably is that you do have a right-wing conservative government. So, it, um, it's, in, um, it's interesting. But it's, of course, one of the things about Finland is its education system is sort of like, it's what it's known for, like it's it's part of its international reputation. So I don't think particularly the right wing would be, in terms of like you know, it could be a real rote loser mm. <laughs> if they were to even think about dismantling the public education system. Mm. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because the, I guess in that post-war period from the end of World War Two through to the mid 1970s. You had in some ways a similar situation in places like Australia where you could have conservative governments, but they weren't about to abolish public ownership of um, the electricity sector or various other state-owned utilities. And it was only once you got to the sort of late 70s, the 80s, that it started to become this thing where both parties are going to start selling off publicly owned stuff and the Tories more so. Whereas in Finland, that balance of forces is not at that kind of stage, at least not regarding education system. Yeah. I guess Very interesting. I guess now moving to Australian politics on this question of nationalisation and privatisation, um, in Sydney what's co- um, there's um, currently a threat that, um, that they're going to privatise the inner west um, bus routes in Sydney, mm. um, which is... Which it's a, even though I've never lived in Sydney, it's kind of a topic that hits close to home because really the only bus routes I ever used were the inner west ones. Mm. Um, so, but basically in response there, the SRAM, the train, um, SRAM workers union, uh, the, the SRAM, well, the public transport, um, union, I don't know what they're called, um, over there, but they've, I think it's the RTBU up there as well. It's the, RT, right, it's the RTBU have um, called a 24-hour, you know, stop work. Um, oh, which the TWU, has, that might have been another relevant union. Yeah. Um, so they've done. Um, so some of the bus drivers, in response to this, have you know went on a 24-hour stop work. Mm. Um, you know, to protest against this kind of privatisation. I think I presume it's actually already happened. Um, I think it might have happened yesterday. Yeah, I think that was it. Um, but yeah, hopefully that's the start of many kind of struggles against, um, privatization, especially mm. since it's in the context of the fact that, um, the inner west is, uh, you know, you know, this is all in the context of the fact that, you know, they want to privatize public transport in the inner west, but they also want to build this big toll road, which has been the source of many, much opposition, um, the West Connex, mm. um, and no real investment in public transport. Whatsoever, despite the fact that the inner west is probably one of the considered one of the sort of hip areas of Sydney, which gets you know a lot of traffic, um, and actually should have you know better fund better funded with more frequent public transport infrastructure. Hmm. Yeah, I mean Sydney uh, is the city in Australia that has the highest uh, use of public transport. It's substantially higher than. Melbourne or any other city, mm. uh, particularly, I think, because of those double-decker big trains. But, yeah, you go to other places in the world, like Berlin or London or Tokyo, 
then you're left looking at Sydney and going, oh, it might be the best in Australia, but it's uh, <laughs> certainly not up there in the world rankings. So. Well, maybe I'm, I'm pretty sure um, Melbourne is actually considered to have better public transport than Sydney. Um, but oh, no. I, I beg to differ because having been a member of Save Our Rail, I've uh, looked at the stats mm. and the the share that the percentage of people who use public mm. transport is definitely higher. Yeah, but I think that might be explained not by quality, um, but more by... Um, Necessity. But more by, um, I think, within Melbourne. Melbourne has a really well-serviced public transport within, within certain regions, yeah, within yeah. the city. Yeah. But then when you go out of there, it's so underserviced that, you know, the yeah. statistics basically mean the car, the car usage creeps up anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. The the sort of the middle of Melbourne's definitely got very good public transport compared to Sydney, but it's the suburbs that drags the sort of statistics down. Yeah, I think that's where Sydney kind of can get around that is because they've got these big trains. You can really pack a heck of a lot of people on Sydney trains. Mm. But yeah, this uh, privatisation. Uh, it's not surprising coming from a liberal government up there, but uh, disgusting, and uh, good to see the the Sydney bus drivers combative from from the get-go, starting on the 24-hour strike. Hopefully they follow that up with more industrial action because, yeah, one-off strikes probably not going to... Mm. I think um, that might be a good segue into our next interview, which we'll quickly just play an announcement. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017. Opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating menus and tickets go to Leaps and Bounds Music Festival dot com. A three CR supporter. Three CR presents Cursive Dialect playing at a Radiothon fundraiser for Greek Resistance Bulletin. Get down to Bar 303 at 303 High Street, Northcote on Saturday, 17th of June to party with Curse of Dialect, MC Lady Lash and MC Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. The entry price will go towards Greek Resistance Bulletin, which brings you news from the grassroots movements in Greece every Tuesday night at 10pm. Help keep 3CR on air and support Radical Radio. To find out more, visit 3cr.org.au. Alrighty, uh, it is Friday morning, it's quarter past seven, seven sixteen to be precise. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and we have got Chris White on the, lo- on the line to talk about the right to strike. Welcome Chris. Uh, good morning, yes. Um, yes, I've been working, I'm retired now and I've got a blog, chriswhiteonline.org, where I write about why we need to... Uh, Revive the strike. I think the problem at the moment is that uh, working people haven't got much power. It's very difficult to transform uh, Australia if we haven't got a, uh, a right to strike. And at the moment, uh, there's so many restrictions and repression 
mm. of industrial action that it's very difficult for ordinary workers to win any fair play at the moment. All right. Uh, just, just briefly, what are those current restrictions on strikes? Well, uh, part of the problem is um, that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of restrictions, so it would uh, uh, take me hours to go uh, through it all. But, um, for example, uh, it's very, very restricted only to what is called enterprise bargaining. Anything outside of enterprise bargaining is unlawful. So, for example, uh, I worked for the uh, unions uh, for 30 years and was uh, uh, Secretary of the United Trades and Labor Council of, of South Australia. And on, at the state basis and also uh, nationally, we would be able to organise national strikes, national strikes, uh, to win wage increases, and then uh, once some industries, on an industry basis, once some industries won the uh, wage increases, then other workers uh, would go on strike to get the uh, flow on. But at the moment, any national uh, bargaining across industries, industry bargaining, uh, is unlawful, and the employers have uh, their corporate lawyers ready to... Uh, penalise unions and workers. So, in fact, uh, these days, uh, unions don't even organise uh, national strikes. Um, sometimes even when you have a very restricted lawful strike and you um, set up a picket, which is a normal uh, way to uh, enforce your demands, the courts automatically say that uh, pickets are unlawful and so they have... Uh, uh, so they have uh, 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 judges injuncting you to get off the uh, picket line. Um, make way for the scabs. Make way for the scabs. And the only way to do that, uh, well, there's ways which I won't go into now, that's another program of organising uh, uh, organizing around that. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, for example, uh, when the governments, which happens all the time, uh, attacking workers' rights, then we have not got the legal right to go on a protest. So uh, unless the employer agrees, which is hardly uh, not at all, then um, we haven't got the right to associate, uh, to combine together, uh, to take off even, say, a half a day uh, without being penalised. Now, the problem is uh, that uh, some unions uh, get attacked constantly, for example, in the building industry. Mm. So uh, the building unions always, when they take <coughs> whatever form of industrial action, and it might actually be very, very minor, uh, just yelling at a boss, for example, somebody's been killed at work and the union organiser is uh, called on but doesn't, give, uh, doesn't do the proper paperwork, then they get uh, fined uh, by the employers and by the uh, AB double C, the uh, government's institution, to try and crush the unions. And they face, the unions and the workers face thousands and thousands of dollars of fines. Now, the thing is that this has been going on now for years. Mm. Um, it was the whole regime, which is very, very uh, complicated, even when you have a right to strike and you have a lawful strike and you have a ballot, uh, then the courts can still order you to go you know, back to work. And so it's uh, most uh, unfair 
and gives all the balance of power to the already more powerful employers. I mean, the employers are already powerful. Mm. So what we need to do is to uh, make sure that the law is changed. Now, this is quite difficult. Mm. Um, originally, all these you know provisions, and literally hundreds of them, came in uh, under work choices. But when the Rudd and Gillard government first came in, the, both uh, Rudd and Gillard and the unions decided not to take up this issue of the right to strike, and they left all the repression, all the fines in the legislation. So we've still got in the so-called Fair Work Act this repressive uh, regime, one of the worst in the world, uh, that takes away the right to strike. So the only way that we can do that is to make sure that ordinary workers and unions, both left-wing unions and right-wing unions, campaign when there's uh, a new parliament to change the law to have a proper right to strike. And this right to strike should be the right to strike full stop without any limitations. um... Whenever workers decide to go on strike, they can withdraw their labour without being subject to being fined or being sacked or Mm. any other penalties, no penalties at all. That's what uh, I mean by the right to strike. Yeah, I was looking at your blog, and you you talk about this uh, firewall clause. Can you tell us a bit about um, a a legal sort of firewall? Well, the firewall clause, uh, you'd have to understand uh, uh, labour law. So, that, for example, what happens is they say, uh, everybody, all the politicians, whether they're labour or liberal, everybody always says, oh, yes, we agree with the right to strike. And then they write the laws to put in very... Um, severe, you know, restrictions. You have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And if you don't do G properly, then the strike is unlawful. Uh, so the only way to do that is to make sure that corporate lawyers uh, who get paid $1,000 uh, an hour uh, don't have the ability to stand up in front of a judge and say, look, they didn't give the proper notice or they didn't give you know, three days' notice or something, or they didn't fill in a form and therefore the whole thing is unlawful and therefore, uh, you know, the union could be fired. So a firewall is to make sure that no uh, employer or no government or no lawyer can actually uh, stop the right to strike. And the extent of it, uh, I think, has been uh, accepted for years but never been put into practice is um, that people should have the broad uh, ability to withdraw their labour on any issue whatsoever. So it's not only of uh, workplace issues, Mm. but any economic and social uh, policy questions, and and in fact of any issue, any unfairness, any, you know, demands of any kind which are direct concerned uh, to the workers in you know, to the unions. And if we don't have that right to strike as a basic freedom, uh, then we're no more than just slaves or, you know, we're getting into, uh, you know, what the fascists uh, did to make sure that uh, people don't have any rights uh, whatsoever. Yeah, I just want to ask um, one question. We'll make a quick comment and then sort of lead it into a kind of question. But I guess one of the things with, I guess, our current um, laws is... You know, within um, debates about the left, um, you know, you know, you can argue that you know maybe unions should just you know break the laws. But I think there is, I think, a problem with just simply saying that because basically, 
the only there's only a few unions, um, very few unions that are actually in the position to break the laws. Um, for example, the CFMU, um, the ETU, the ones that have a massive membership um, and have you know lots of money to basically pay off the fines. And I think, I guess one of the implications, I guess that leads in question: What do you think would be the implications of you know if we were to win? Um, or even to change the laws to basically have the right to strike institutionalized, it, would it give, you know, a basis for, you know, some of the more, um, smaller, more, probably a bit more conservative unions to actually have adopt more kind of radical action, um, in defense of, you know, work, um, of, um, in, you know, defense of increased wages or even political demands? Yes, I think, uh, I agree with <laughs> everything that you've, said there that's <clears throat> that's well put um, it is very difficult a lot of workers in their unions at the moment can take what is called unprotected action but uh, then you just risk uh, the employer or even the government uh, coming in uh, after the strike even if you even if you win it of prosecuting and fining you know the union um, <clears throat> Even if you have a right to strike, a legal strike, that is, you don't have any restrictions whatsoever, uh, it's not easy to organise a strike. Um, but I agree with what you say. It means that, um, say, for example, if you're in a workplace and it's absolutely obvious to everybody there that the employer, for, say, for example, for years has been most unfair and you know, repressive, racist even, the way they treat the workforce, and... You know, the workers are sick, sick and tired of it all and they have a meeting. Now, even having a meeting is an unlawful sort of activity. They have a meeting and they decide, they discuss things and they decide to take some industrial action to negotiate with the boss to back off because of the unfairness. Then they will be allowed to do that. At the moment, they're not allowed to do it. That is, it's unlawful uh, unless it's bargaining during an enterprise agreement. So on any issue that comes up, uh, then they would be able to take some action. And as you said, some of the uh, unions who at the moment are not able to or feel they can't organise strikes would be able to at least sit down. When I started working with the unions, and it was a different era, uh, this was in the 60s and the 70s, there wasn't a week that went by when we didn't have industrial action. That is, uh, although there was an arbitration system which solved the dispute rather than fining unions, uh, we were able to, to take industrial action, even though it was unlawful at the time. Uh, we weren't, you know, you know, we weren't repressed. It was accepted that um, people would be able to withdraw their labour, and the main idea was just to settle the dispute. What were the grievances? Let's get to st stuck into that, rather than using laws uh, to say you can't strike, uh, you know, whatsoever. So I think that uh, people would be free. Uh, you know, to bargain, uh, and they could bargain over any issues. I mean, at the moment, for example, um, say over environmental issues, not allowed to strike over environmental uh, issues. Uh, mm. You know, the question of uh, a lot of unions want to, you know, debate and take industrial action to improve the you know conditions in the workplace, unless that is for enterprise bargaining, uh, we're not allowed to do that. Um, so what we've got to make sure is that the actual right to withdraw our labour, our labour power, under any circumstances, at any time, 
is not subject to fines, not subject, uh, you know, to the courts you know, coming in. Now, I think if that was to uh, happen, and it's a very big if because you have to convince the parliament to change the law, then we would have a uh, better opportunity to improve uh, wages, uh, to solve the problem of insecure work. And, in fact, I think this is a basic democratic issue because the strike in the end of the day is one of the only means that workers have to have some sort of power to win our demands. Mm. I mean, even if you have a strike, this means to say that you win. Mm. I mean, we were always uh, in the unions uh, brought up to say, never start a strike unless you're going to win. Make sure that um, you are able to. And I think if we were able to win more strikes, then you'd be able to unionise more people. Mm. I mean, overseas, for example... Uh, I mean, things these days are so bad with the capitalist uh, order and the uh, attacks by governments on workers' rights that in many countries there's not only uh, strikes going on but general strikes across the board. Mm. Now, um, people probably don't realise that uh, back in the 70s we had a one-day national strike when Fraser tried to take away uh, Medicare. So at the moment, we should be able to, if, if we had the confidence, if we have the right to strike, we'd have the confidence to not only organise in our industry, but to organise nationally. And mm. then we could put on some proper uh, pressure on the government on some of these big issues when they try to take away health care or don't fund education or all the other issues that have major concern to the working class at the moment. All right, and now it's, it seems like a bit of a chicken and egg scenario because it's a big reform for the Parliament to implement. The ALP right aren't stupid. They know what a right to strike would mean for their allies and donors at the big end of town. So how do we win this reform when we know that the conservative wing of... like In your blog, you talk about a, a proper reforming Labor Party and the Greens implementing this kind of uh, reform and bringing in the right to strike... But it seems like a bit of a chicken and egg scenario because it would need to be quite a quite a powerful social movement that actually forces the parliament to implement this uh, a reform like this. Well, I think I probably should just let you <laughs> let everybody think about that because what you said is exactly you know correct. Um, I don't think this is going to occur unless uh, unions, that is all unions, both left and right. Uh, the ACTU, the ACTU has good policies. Um, there's nobody I know, even if you ask the Labour Party the people, even the right, the wingers, though everybody agrees with the right to strike, but when it actually comes to it, uh, they are dead scared of the campaign that the employers and the right wing will run against them. So it is, is extremely difficult. I mean, it does raise that uh, issue of whether we could uh, organise collectively enough people to start trying to take industrial action to actually force these issues. But I must say it is very, very um, uh, difficult, and I'm raising it because unless we have it on the agenda, mm. to have a huge uh, social movement. I mean, um, there was a time when there was enough industrial action, enough people in unions, when we could, uh, for example, having a, a national stoppage when Clary O'Shea... Uh, defied the then penal powers and was taken to jail and there was enough industrial action, national stoppages uh, to force 
the issue and make sure he was uh, released. And after that, because there was so much industrial action, the employers, even though the law wasn't changed at the time, the employers decided, well, we won't take any action against strikes. Mm. Uh, we have to get back to that idea of uh, a strike is always relatively legitimate and the question is to sit down and negotiate the grievances and look at the issues of why people are on strike. But I must agree with you that, um, say, for example, I've been involved in this, well, going back 40 years, but I won't go back that far, but, for example, when uh, Kevin Rudd came into uh, government, I remember just prior to that, when he was in opposition, he stood up in Parliament gave a big speech saying, oh, we agree with the right to strike. As soon as he uh, got in, he made the opposite speech and mm. said, no, that we're going to keep these you know, restrictions on strikes. Uh, and so it was very, very difficult. And the same thing actually happened when Bill Shorten was the Industrial Relations uh, Minister as, as well. Now, any Labor Party uh, MP uh, would come on the, this program and say, yes, I agree with the right to strike, but in practice uh, they haven't actually had the... Uh, you know, have the ability or the guts uh, to stick to their principles and make sure that these reforms came in. And I must say, it would, as you said, require a social movement, a union movement of some considerable uh, strength to be able to do that. I'm partly enthused because uh, everybody's, you know, debating this. Sally McManus, when she was quizzed on TV, uh, immediately said, well, we've got the right to uh, break unfair laws. Mm. And that raised that whole question of the right to strike. And everywhere you go, um, where there is uh, industrial action taken, uh, you can draw conclusions. I mean, one of the things under a right to strike would mean that an employer shouldn't have the right to lock out. Mm. I mean, the, pur the purpose of the right to strike is because a normal average person or average worker would recognise that the employers, the corporates particularly our big multinationals, have so much power that the only way to counter that is to have the worker, to have the ability, uh, you know, to withdraw your labour. Mm. And this was accepted, really, uh, under the old arbitration system, even though it was unlawful. Uh, you could go on strike because you knew that you'd sit around in the arbitration system and the matter would be settled. Now, that doesn't happen. What happens is you get the courts involved and the lawyers come in Injunctions are made and then uh, workers are, 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 are threatened and the unions are fined. So um, if we don't really raise and debate these issues, as you get it, then we're no different than being slaves or uh, no different from like a fascist type of society where we have no um, civil rights, no, uh, no political rights. Hmm. All right, well, um, good work keeping it on the radar, and, um, yeah, we'll have to wrap it up because we've got a bit more news to cover and uh, another interview coming up. But, um, yeah, thanks for talking with us this morning. No, 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 well, that's fine. I'm just uh, raising it on the question, and uh, I've actually written many, many articles uh, on it, chriswhiteonline.org, and I've been involved in trying to grapple with these problems for over 30 years because uh, of the... <clears throat> problem that the law isn't good enough and we should have a basic right to withdraw our labour without having any penalties. OK, thanks very yeah, much. Yeah. That's all good. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Uh, yes, Chris White there. Uh, as he's uh, mentioned, former union organiser and uh, he runs the Chris White online blog.
All right. Um, we'll play a quick announcement and move on to some news from Green Left Weekly. Indeed. annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. Hey, you're back on Green Left Weekly Radio on 855am with Jacob and Zane. I guess um, one article I want to sort of read up, um, this is in the latest Green Left Weekly. It's an article written by Mary Mekovich um, on Gonski, or equal, um, titled Gonski or Equal Opportunities for All. Um, basically in here, um, <coughs> sorry, um, uh, Mary discusses kind of like basically um, what the, the Gonski inquiry into education, which, you know, that basically it was, this, I, it was this sort of funding plan for education which would address funding for, um, for schools based on need. Um, in this article, Mary kind of talks about the limitations and, you know, what a better model could look like. Because um, in 2011, the Gonski um, inquiry, you know, into education found that you know Australia has one of the most unequal education systems in all, with advanced country in of all in the advanced capitalist countries, with large divisions of high and low income income students at different schools. Um, you know, and she states here this confirms that we do not have equal. Educational opportunities. It is worrying because it also means that government schools, especially those in poor social economic areas, lose their most able students who otherwise would have assisted in creating a positive and effective learning environment. Students do not only learn from the, from the teachers, they also learn with and from with each other. And of course, the authors of the Gonski report clearly identified this problem and the fact that the education system is not just imitating social divisions, but compounding them. Consequently, um, she writes here that, you know, Gonski recommended allocating funding to schools based on a set amount per student with additional funds for students uh, attending schools in remote locations with a high proportion of Indigenous children from low socioeconomic backgrounds with limited English proficiency and with a disability. But then she makes kind of raises one critique at the, the model is that, you know, the problem with the, one of the problems with the Gonski models ignores whether school is private or for government. It has government subsidies going to fee paying schools. This means schools will still have different levels of financial resources and maintain social divisions in the education system, including in poor, um, working class areas. You know, for example, she points here some poor Catholic schools, which operate largely because of government funding, but still charge fees, will be able to provide more resources or small classes than the local government school. Mm. And, of course, in the Gonski model, the rich private schools would still receive some government funding despite their investments in real estate, their high-salaried principals, and their vast sporting and educational facilities. And, of course, Gonski's solution to these 
discrepancies was to advise government schools principals to encourage PACs to raise more money. In 2013, the Julia Gillard government was only prepared to support a revised Gonskimo, which included um, cutting um, two, $2 billion from government funding for universities while promising there would be no cuts to funds from all private schools, including the wealthiest. Um, but now, this in response, now the coalition government announced that it would not continue the Gonski funding after 2017 in an apparent turnabout on May 2nd, a day after announcing that university students now have to pay more. The Malcolm Turnbull government has unveiled Gonski 2.0. Um, you know, Turnbull is attempting, but really, you know, she argues here that Turnbull is trying to deceive people by pretending to implement Gonski when he is really cutting the already inadequate amount that Labor had promised. His model promised an extra $2 billion over four years, but the Australian Education Union said $3.8 billion is required in 2018 to 2019 alone. Under Turnbull's new model, public schools will get less than half the extra funding. Only 20% of the schooling resource standard will go to the public schools, while the private gets 80%. These figures have no educational justification or consideration of how much funding these schools receive. And, of course, um, the Turnbull is not delivering needs-based constantly funding. His actions will only wide, widen the inequity between public and private schools. Mm. And, of course, Benji mentions that, you know, um, Victoria public schools will be 60, 60, $630 million worse off compared to the original agreement. It is no wonder that the state government do not support this new model. No state government will consult it, and it will cost schools uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in lost resources. And the AU has spent a lot of time and resources campaigning for Gonski, a flawed model that only promised a few crumbs to private schools. But now, you know, she says, you know, in light of the fact that, you know, Turnbull's bringing this very watered-down plan, you know, the AU and the union should be pushing for, you know, a much better model and, you know, that put... That, fights for real educational opportunities and scrap, and it would mean, you know, scrapping all funding to private schools. Mm. Isn't it the case already that private schools get more government funding than public schools? Uh, it depends. Um, they get... It depends on the school. Um, but they do... The but fact on, that they... On a macro level, yep. on a national level, I'm, I'm pretty sure private schools get more of the education dollar than public schools. Yeah, well, they receive they receive too much funding to begin with, regardless. Yeah. So, I mean, private schools shouldn't be receiving, you know, government money that yeah. that could be going to schools that especially need it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, Jacob's going to hit the road, so uh, I'm going to be flying solo with you from here on in. So, uh, thank you, Jacob, and uh, see you next Friday morning or soon. Other rock and roll news, uh, Chris Cornell died uh, yesterday, suddenly, at the age of 52. It's pretty sad. Uh, I was not a massive, like, someone who was obsessed with Soundgarden and owned all their albums, but nonetheless, Soundgarden's, like, a pretty influential, you know, part of the soundtrack of the 90s, that, that grunge movement. And, yeah, the world is a lesser place without Chris Cornell. It's not like... I don't know, it's not politically related, but it's it's just sad. It's just sad. So, yeah, I don't have any Soundgarden to play, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, give, uh, give a bit of Black Hole Sun or Spoon Man a spin today or this evening, and, uh, yeah, remember the rad musician that was. Uh, okay, bit of, uh, bit of good news for a change. Western Australian councils support marriage equality. 
The Western Australian City Councils of Bayswater and Fremantle passed motions of support for marriage equality. Uh, this is back on April 26. Both motions instruct the councils to write to the Prime Minister and all federal MPs calling for them to make marriage equality a reality. Uh, four WA councils have now passed such motions, including the City of Vincent and Port Headland, with a total of 46 nationally, including Darwin City Council and Brisbane City Council. So a good initiative there from uh, local government and, um, yeah, this idea that local government shouldn't comment on issues outside of rates and rubbish is itself rubbish. Uh, speaking of rubbish, uh, Comrade Steve Jolly down there at uh, City of Yarra, they held a protest uh, was it last night or the night before. You know, they had a protest at council chambers against the proposed bin tax, the... Uh, for those who are not aware of it, the, the uh, City of Yarra proposed basically a double dip. You already pay for your bin collection in your rates, but they wanted to add a separate and additional bin charge. So, uh, yeah, Councillor Steve Jolly said that is a rubbish proposal and you should get rid of it. Don't be double double taxing people and you know, shifting shifting the cost um, onto sort of ordinary ratepayers and workers for rubbish collection. And, uh, yeah, so that's, and that council is majority controlled by Greens. So I think the Greens flirted with the idea, but after a bit of grassroots campaigning by the socialists there, they've, uh, they've dropped that. So that's good work. Good work, Steve Jolly. Uh, Raf Wu in terminates dodgy 2005 IGA agreement. The Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, RAFWU, lodged an application on March 14 with the Fair Work Commission to terminate an outdated 2005 non-union wage agreement. The Delahey Superfresh Proprietary Limited Certified Agreement has been used in two Victorian IGA stores in Glengalla and Delahey to underpay uh, about 100 people up to $8,000 a year below the minimum award entitlements. Uh, under the agreement, workers were not paid penalty rates for weekend and night work in exchange for a base salary that was 10% above the minimum wage in 2005. That rate is now $4 below the award rate. The Fair Work Commission agreed on May 8 to terminate the agreement, and when it comes to in, into effect on July 1, the minimum award will deliver an average 23% wage increase to RAFWU members. So, good work, Rafu, kicking goals. Uh, a Dani coal mine would cause the global coal price to fall. Uh, I do believe there was a German gentleman who wrote about this phenomenon some years ago. Uh, oversupply. That's where a bunch of competing capitalist corporations are uh, all attempting to pump their commodity onto the market and sell it for a profit and you eventually arrive at a situation of oversupply. And that's happening in the coal industry. And if that horrendous Adani coal mine is built in Queensland, lo and behold, it will add to the existing oversupply of coal. So a report obtained by the ABC says coal prices will fall significantly and exports from Australia's biggest coal ports will decline if Adani Carmichael coal mine goes ahead. Uh, if the coal mine went ahead, it would add 40 million tonnes a year to the market and global coal prices would fall by $3.80 to 
to $65 a tonne. Competition from the mine would reduce exports from the port of Newcastle by 11 or 12 million tonnes a year, which would lower the coal royalties New South Wales receives. The report comes under the Queensland government is, is, has announced actually just yesterday a royalties holiday followed by a phase-in of royalty payments uh, which could amount to $1.2 billion in revenue foregone. And the latest figures on that is that it's to begin with about $320 million of revenue foregone which is basically the Queensland government giving free money to Adani um, which is rubbish and there's all this uh, crackdown on welfare recipients at the moment but uh, yeah it seems like giving a lazy billion dollars to Adani to to build a uh, rail line to their mine, oh that's alright and uh, giving them a $320 million uh, royalty holiday, oh that's alright but gee, we've got to uh, find if there's a a couple of uh, welfare recipients who are mm, soothing their disconnection from society by perhaps taking some recreational drugs and ruthlessly punish them for that because, well, we couldn't have someone who gets like, I don't know, $12,000 a year in welfare payments. You couldn't have them taking some recreational drugs to sort of soothe their fairly unpleasant and miserly existence. That would be an outrage. Uh, voters disapprove of higher education changes. The latest central poll released on May 9 shows voters disapprove of cuts to universities and higher student fees and fear the impact on young people. It also showed Labor comfortably ahead of the coalition on the two-party preferred vote by 54 to 46%. The poll showed 56% disapprove of the government's $2.8 billion uh, reduction in funding for higher education and 60% disapprove of increasing student fees and it found 47% approve and 44% opposed students repaying their student debts when their salary reaches $42,000. Despite nearly 30 years of student fees, 45% of respondents think tertiary education should be free and 61% agreed that young people are under attack. And we're going to have some activist calendar action coming up real soon, so you can hear about what what protests and meetings and stuff are going on across the city in this coming little while. And I might just play a couple of announcements in the meantime. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson Heltrail. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. Are you 
wondering how to pay your donation, you can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or EFTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Alrighty, you are listening to Green Left Radio. It is just past 8am, and that means that this being Friday morning, it is time for the activist calendar. Uh, so, starting today... And going till Sunday, the Canberra National Refugee Rights Conference is happening. Uh, full program available online. Google it. Um, yeah, if you if you're looking for a sudden road trip this weekend, maybe you want to head up to Canberra and be part of the National Refugee Rights Conference. Uh, tomorrow, there is a conference on the 1916-17 anti-conscription campaign. 2017 is the 100-year anniversary of the second of two referendums on conscription. In 1917, in the midst of war, Australian anti-conscription campaigners succeeded in defeating the introduction of conscription by an even greater margin. Uh, This was a unique example of popular opposition to conscription in the countries engaged in the war, but has received little attention in official Anzac World War I commemorations. Uh, 9am to 4pm at Siteworks, 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick, and that's organised by the Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign. And you can find them on social media. Uh, and then tomorrow there's also a rally, Tell Turnbull, Marriage Equality Now, No More Stalling on LGBTI Rights, No More Kowtowing to the Right-Wing Members of the Liberal Backbench. It's time for Turnbull to drop the plebiscite and allow a free vote. 1pm at the State Library, Swanston Street City. Bring your rainbow flags and make it loud and proud. I'll be there. And I think a heck of a lot of other people there uh, are going to be there as well because, really, it is long overdue equal marriage in this country. Uh, Monday, May 22, there is a forum uh, hosted by the Australian Student Environment Network, Unions and the Environment. That is happening at 6.30pm, Training Room 1 and 2, Level 3, Union House at the University of Melbourne. Um... There is also a forum, uh, Attacks on Higher Education, How Can We Fight Back? 
Tuesday, May 23, 12 till 2 p.m., the Coalition's new budget attacks students in universities with increased fees, lower repayment thresholds for graduates and a cutting of billions of dollars federal funding. At VicUni, this comes on top of existing cutbacks. Join the discussion on how we can fight back. Vic Uni, Footscray Park Campus, room M317. And that's organised by VU Socialist Alliance. Um, Friday, May 26 to Saturday, May 27, Theatre, Corrindurk. In 1881, the people of Corrindurk Aboriginal Reserve went head-to-head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. Their goal was both simple and revolutionary, to be allowed to continue the brilliant experiment in self-determination they had pioneered for themselves on the scrap of country left to them. The production pays tribute to the resilience and adaptability of people who rose to the challenge despite the odds, appropriating the power of the written word to make their own voices heard loud and clear. That's at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, uh, yeah, on the 25th and 26th of, um, of May. Thursday, oh sorry, 26th, 27th, next weekend. Thursday, May 25, uh, film screening, Neruda. It's 1948 and the Cold War has reached Chile. Following the president's outlawing of communism, Neruda, uh, Luis Gneco and his artist wife Delia, Mercedes Moran, are forced into hiding. Beloved by the populace, they slip underground and are pursued by incompetent, vainglorious police inspector Oscar Pelunchonel, uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, hoping to make a name for himself by capturing the country's most infamous fugitive. It's at 6pm, Cinema Nova, 380 Ligon Street, Carlton. That's on Thursday, May 25. Uh, Saturday, May 27, Walk with Educators, Big Steps Family Day. Early childhood educa- educators are fed up of earning, with earning as little as 20 bucks an hour and they're not going anywhere until they win professional pay. This year they've staged the largest early childhood work-off in Australian history uh, and even took the campaign to TV screens and billboards across the country. Now it's time to hit the streets and demand equal pay for educators. Uh, yeah, need to show the government that families support us. 1 till 4 p.m., Parliament Steps, Spring Street City, uh, on Saturday, May 27. So, yeah, get along there and support... Um, early childhood educators and uh, yeah we were talking with Chris Wirt before about the restrictions on strike action the difficulties there um, so those workers have shown a bit of spine they've been doing some industrial action so yeah get behind them uh, Saturday May 20 no Thursday June 1 uh, 10 years of indigenous closing the gap why are we still failing Speakers, uh, John Altman from Deakin Uni and Justin McCall from Oxfam. 7pm at Bella Union Bar upstairs at Trades Hall, corner of Logon and Victoria Streets, uh, sponsored by the New International Bookshop. Friday, June 2, uh, Si Se Puede, Yes You Can. Uh, mortgage stress and outright homelessness is rising sharply in Australia as unbridled speculation drives house prices and rents beyond the reach of many. Spain gives us an idea of our future if this trend continues. 
Si se puede, no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, yes you can, shows a typical week in the life of Barcelona's platform for people affected by mortgages, PAH, a radical activist organisation dedicated to fighting evictions and demanding policies which put people's needs ahead of corporate greed. Uh, directed by Paula Faust, runtime 72 minutes. That's happening at uh, the library at Pavey Place, Vermont South, uh, and it's hosted by Green Left, so that's yeah, Friday, June 2. Uh, music, Ezekiel Ox and uh, band Rock Cherry Bar. Singer, songwriter, filmmaker, actor and political activist, 9pm, Cherry Bar, ACDC Lane City. That is also on Friday, June 2. And Saturday, June 17, there is the Big Red Book Fair at Trades Hall, corner of Logan and Victoria Streets, Carlton South. That's from 10am to 5pm. Thursday, uh, sorry, Saturday, June 17. And then later that evening, Saturday, June 17, it's the Green Life Weekly Comedy Debate. And that's always packed with a bunch of belly laughs. Uh, fake news is better than real news. A sparkling night of progressive comedy with MC, the ever-epic and uh, snoozy Rod Quantock, with Sean Bedlam, Pauline Fartson, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Morven Smith and others to be announced. Quality dinner from 6.30, not included in the door price. Uh, bar available, doors are at 6.30 for 8 o'clock start, come along, have a mingle, have a chat, get get your mung on, eat some food, and then, um, yeah, have, have a laugh at the, uh, at the comedy debate. Uh, tickets are 50 bucks solidarity, $30 regular, $22 low-waged, $15 concession, and, yeah, check it out on Facebook, just Google Grand Life Weekly Comedy Debate. Uh, and Friday, June 30 to Saturday, July 1, there is a conference, the Rojava Revolution in Northern Syria, an experiment in radical democracy, feminism and ecology. That's at the Vic Uni City Campus, 300 Flinders Street City. And for more information, see Australians for Kurdistan. You can Google them or look them up on the social media. And that is the activist calendar for another week. Are you concerned about the growing threat of nuclear weapons? Join the Women's March to Ban the Bomb on the 17th of June in cities across Australia. It's women-led but inclusive of all. Go to womenbanthebomb.org for details. Voice your support for the UN negotiations now underway on a treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons and protest against Australia's shameful boycott of these historic talks. 17th of June, womenbanthebomb.org. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia is a 3CR supporter. support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. 
or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radiothon. Yeah, pop, 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 Radiothon. Get on it. Support 3CR. It's, uh, you know, it's good. You know, it's staunch activist radio. And it is supported. It, it happens because of you, so you got to keep, keep supporting us. Keep this thing ticking along. Alright, uh, there is a new book about, uh, Jack Mundy, the former leader of the uh, famous BLF Green Bands in Sydney. He was the secretary of the Builders Labourers Federation at the time. Uh, so notorious were these actions that the state saw fit to ban the union and uh, there was beef between the, um, the national um, leadership of the union based down here in Victoria land and the New South Wales branch and there was all sorts of beefs there. Anyway, there's a new book about it by John Coleman. Uh, it's called The House That Jack Built, Jack Mundy, Green Band's Hero, and uh, it's well worth a look. Any book on the modern urban heritage movement of uh, would at least make mention of Jack Mundy and the 1960s um, and 70s Green Bands, but for Sydney-based architect James Coleman, uh, Mundy's figure continues to loom large over the city. Originally from northwestern Queensland, Jack Mundy, a card-carrying member of the Communist Party of Australia and elected official of New South Wales Builders Labour's Federation, became the best-known unionist and best-known conservationist in Australia, according to Coleman. The battles that Mundy, the VLF, and the various community organisations fought to defend urban amenity and inner-city heritage would place matters of conservation and integrated living cities into the public consciousness for the first time. Mundy was well ahead of his time in his concern for the preservation of historic and culturally significant buildings and living spaces. Under his leadership, the BLF ended new territory by claiming it was a union's right and responsibility to intervene into such matters, particularly when government and other institutions refused to do so. So... If you head along to the cultural descent section at greenleft.org.au, you'll be able to find the rest of that review and a link to the book if you are so inclined as to purchase it. But, uh, yeah, I'm uh, personally quite a fan of the Green Bands and, uh, yeah, I'm very interested in that book. Looks looks very interesting. And, uh, yeah, it's coming from the perspective of, uh, obviously, someone who works as an architect, so it's... Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing, the green bands, when viewed from many angles, including from the architectural angle. Uh, Alright, I'm going to play a quick another little announcement, and I'm going to see if I can get Ibrahim Al-Mahdi on the line. Uh, and Ibrahim's going to talk to us this morning about uh, the, the Houthi rebellion in Yemen and the savage repression of that by the, um, well, it's it's sort of turned into a civil war. It was part of the Arab Spring. I won't kind of 
talk too much. I'll, I'll get Ibrahim to talk about it. But, uh, yeah, it's it's got real ugly there. And whilst there's been a lot of focus on Syria, there's also been this very uh, horrible uh, conflict happening in Yemen. And the U.S.-backed Saudi regime has been attacking the attacking the rebels quite savagely and uh, intervening in the neighbouring country's affairs very violently. So, yeah, it's uh, something that um, Ibrahim will tell us a bit more about. So, stick around. You're in 3CR. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Okay, welcome back. It is 8.16 on Friday morning and you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and on the line we have Ibrahim Al-Mahdi to talk about what's happening in Yemen. Uh, welcome, Ibrahim. Hi, good morning, Zane, and good morning to all respected audience. So, um, yeah, what's... Can you what's tell happening? us... Yeah, what, what are the origins of the of the uh, Houthi rebellion in Yemen and, and what do the Houthis stand for and... What was okay. the, what was the government like until recently? Um, first, I'll, I'll just brief um, review and the audience about the situation because um, there are no much of news about Yemen uh, coming in the media, and uh, I think w- with everyone I speak to, I see that the picture is highly distorted, and um, not in, like no one understands what well what's the situation. Mm. Um, and the situation is, is a bit is a bit messy. I mean, I mean, but overall, the clear fact or the base fact is that the situation in Yemen is is tragic. Mm. Uh, after two years of external military aggression that killed and injured more than 32,000 Yemenis, and the economic blockade that's driving more than 20 million people to the edge of famine. So there is actually, a, to define it properly, there is an a war, it's not a civil war, it's a, an external aggression committed by the neighboring countries, the Gulf countries, and supported by some of the Western countries. Um, they utilize the, uh, the uh, political uh, divide happening in Yemen, mm. so they intervened to support one party against the other. So they actually they support the overthrown president, uh, who was overthrown uh, by uh, revolution um, led by a Houthi group. Uh, the Houthi group is just part of the Yemeni people. They have their political program. They have their agendas, just like any political group. Um, however, um, 
the, the development, latest development, took the situation from being an internal matter to being an international um, world problem and an international, uh, a huge humanitarian disaster hmm. uh, due to the um, intervention by external forces, which doesn't care about, doesn't care much about the um, interest of the people and the citizens, and they pretty much destroyed um, most of the infrastructure in the country, which made uh, living conditions very horrible for people in Yemen. Hmm. Um, one of the things that gets talked about on the news is people say that the Houthis are an Iranian like front group. Is that true? Like, what, what are the? You said that the Houthis are, are of the people. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how that rebellion uh, came about and and a bit more about what they stand for and really how how closely are they linked or not linked to the Iranian uh, government. Uh, well, I can't really um, I can't talk on their behalf about uh, about this. About like, what what do they uh, exactly? Uh, how's, how how is the relationship with the Iranians and so on? Mm. But uh, I think this what, what apparently this is a big political agenda that is being used by uh, intervening countries, by the Saudi coalition, mm. to justify to justify a huge war, mm. and the war is is just to um, bring their allies back to the government. So the Houthis are, are a group in, in Yemen. They have their um, uh, religious background. They have their political uh, aspirations. Um, but they are not different than anyone else in the, in the country. They have, mm. There are other groups who are loyal to the Saudis and uh, um, the Muslim Brotherhood and so Sunni sects and Shia six. Uh, so there is a t- sort of um, orientation towards the uh, the Shia, hmm. um, but it is not. It's not that they, as they represent in the media, that uh, they are agents of the Iranians. There hmm. is no proof about that. There is no proof that the Iranians are intervening in the way that we see that the Saudis are intervening in, in the uh, Yemeni affairs. It is just uh, political propaganda to justify uh, this huge war. So, um, yeah, so it's it's just another, it is within the internal context of Yemen. There are several groups, there are several forces fighting to get, or actually um, trying to get to the the authority, to the power. And um, it's been intense uh, the past five, six years. But it was within the, um, let's say, within the household of Yemen. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been taken out until the last two years when the Saudis decided to support and pack their uh, allies and to use the military force and uh, to, to push the Houthis back from, uh, from Sana'a and other cities. Uh, which apparently they were not successful of doing, and they're just causing a mess in the country. Hmm. And so uh, I understand, was there, was there a dictatorship in Yemen before this rebellion? What was the government like before that? It was um, democratic, but uh, in, a, in, a, in a bizarre way. I mean, the, the leader of was ruling the country, has been ruling the country for 30 years. So the first 
um, movement by the Yemeni of people uh, in 2011 tried to um, to push this uh, ruler of the authority. So there was a sort of revolution, and all almost every um, political um, group participated in that, including Houthis, including the ones who are fighting the Houthis now. They were on the same line, um, trying to take the previous leader, um, whose name Ali Abdullah Saleh, from the authority, from power. And then when this had happened, a new temporary president was um, appointed for two years. And this president uh, apparently did not do well. People were not happy, satisfied. All political groups also were not happy with, with his performance. However, uh, the Houthi groups um, named Ansarullah tried to, uh, to, to lead the movement to push this temporary president out. Hmm. Um, so there's, there, there was a, a leader who was, was running Yemen for about 33 years, followed by a temporary president for two years, and he was overthrown again. And the same way that this first president was overthrown. Um, and now the, um, the, the, uh, the, the groups who support uh, the temporary president um, seeked help from the Saudis and the Saudis. Actually, they, they have intervened in this uh, without much of consultation with the Yemeni people. Yemeni people were in the table of negotiation, uh, mm. trying to discuss the next phase after, after the temporary president. And um, this war just started out of nothing. Just, it was surprising to everyone. Hmm. And uh, how... how um how influential is that ongoing U.S. military support to the Saudi regime, uh, to the the Saudi kind of intervention and, and war in in Yemen? Well, the American support is is very uh, uh, is very uh, essential to the Saudis. Without it, they would not be able to intervene in Yemen. Uh, so they they actually announced the war from Washington. Uh, so the Saudi ambassador, ambassador in Washington announced that war. And um, um, there is ongoing support, um, logistical support, and perhaps military. We don't know. I mean, but for sure is there is a, um, a weapon sale, um, huge weapon sales uh, to the Saudi regime. And I think um, this is what actually uh, what makes these, um, democratic countries uh, twist their values because there is huge benefit of, mm. uh, of weapon sales and these things to the, to the Saudi coalition um, who pays a lot for uh, any sort of services and media coverage and uh, political support. So mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's fundamental. Sadly, it's fundamental. This, this support is, is happening and it still continues to happen by many, many, many Western countries. Mm. Um, and I've uh, just heard in the news recently about an outbreak of cholera in, in Yemen. Yes. Um, the humanitarian situation is, a, is an important topic to, to uh, talk about. Um, the Yemen is under uh, economic blockage since two years, hmm. and this is causing a lot of disruption.
transformation in the um, in people's life and uh, um, people's ability to reach medicine and reach food. Um, so there are some supplies happening or coming to the country, but very limited, less than the the need. And also, when they when these supplies come, they come uh, in doubles of the price because of the hardships and because of the increased prices of the shipment and insurance and everything. Mm. So the military intervention caused a lot of damage, side damage. Right? Even if the company, if the, if the business is sending shipments to Yemen, they sh- they, these, these products uh, um, reach the country um, with a high cost. Mm. Um, the other aspect is lack of money power. So the Yemen is not allowed to export oil or um, like manage its own affairs um, just to keep the economy going. Mm. Um, so there's uh, lack of uh, ability to buy. The mm. purchasing power has declined uh, tremendously. So even this middle uh, class of people who used to be able to at least fulfill their needs, they are not able to fulfill their needs. They are facing hardships in that. Mm. So there's um, right, a lack of... Yes, very very lack sorry, of. we've got to wrap it up because the next um, show are coming in. Um, yeah. But, uh, so yeah. I'm uh, speaking about the cholera. So the, 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 um, the hospital services has been affected a lot. The medicine is not available uh, much and the, the lack of, uh, of medical staff and medical facilities and also an mm. ability to, to, to do the, uh, to do the cleaning, cleaning, uh, for the streets and cities. Yeah. Uh, right. I'm, this, I'm this very sorry, work. Ibrahim. We, we've really got to wrap it up, but, um, that's, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Thank, yep. Thanks heaps for, um, speaking to us this morning. And, uh, yeah, uh, Ibrahim Al Mahdi, we, we might get Ibrahim back on another time too, to, to talk to us about Yemen again. Thanks again. Uh, and Ibrahim. Th- Thanks, Hussein. Um, just for anyone who wants to be in touch with us, uh, we have an email, Yemen Community in Melbourne, ycmelbourne at gmail.com. Cool. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. To start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?